When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 4. Welcome back to the Dark Paranormal. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and for the next 30 minutes, I want you to listen with the same ears you listened with as a child when you hear stories about the paranormal and the supernatural. The same wonder that sometimes would leave you too scared to go asleep. The same level of belief that would have you looking over your shoulder when you went upstairs to bed and normally lead to a run to the bedroom. For the uninitiated, all we ask on the dark paranormal is that for the next 30 minutes you suspend your disbelief and you listen to these true paranormal experiences with an open mind. We're now, obviously, in the midst of season four, so we take another look at some of the more well-known cases in the world of the paranormal. If you're new to the show, we alternate seasons between true listener experiences and, like I've said, some of the more known, or famous, if you will, paranormal experiences. But hopefully you still pick up something that you did not know prior to listening. Last week's case, we took a look at the Black Monk of Pontefract, and this week we're going to remain in the UK, namely at the capital of England, London. In particular, one house that has gone down almost in mythology in terms of the paranormal experiences that took place there. Now, mythology is actually a really good word to use for today's case because there are that many varying versions of the events that took place, it can be hard to decipher the truth. So what you're going to hear today is a version of one of those alleged timelines. But before we head to London to find out exactly where today's case takes place, I firstly need to say thank you to all of our Patreons and supporters of the show. By signing up to Patreon, you not only support this podcast and allow it to continue to be made, but you also get these episodes before anyone else. In addition, you also get a weekly show every Sunday called Dark Bites, where we take a look at everyday people's paranormal experiences. And Dark Bites will run continuously, meaning even in between seasons, you can still get some dark paranormal content. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. There's also a link in the show notes. But for now, a big thank you to Jenny McCauley, Alex May, Fade, Miranda Cummings, Cameron Griffin, Rebecca, Bernadette Wingate and Aaron Daniels. Sincerely, thank you everyone. 
It means the world to me that you're willing to support the content you listen to. Although I completely appreciate not everyone is in a position to join Patreon. So if that's the case and you wish to support the show, maybe just tell a friend and help spread the word. That way we can guarantee to get more amazing listener paranormal experiences. So, we're about to head off to London, to the big smoke. All I ask is that you make yourself comfy, turn down the lights, suspend your disbelief, and join me as we head to number 50, Barclay Square. With windows caked and blackened by dust, full of silence and emptiness, and yet with no notice about it anywhere that it may be had for renting. This is known as the Haunted House in Barclay Square. This quote was taken from the London Society magazine, Mayfair, in 1879. However, the dark history of number 50, Barclay Square, begins many, many years before. Adeline had reached the end. The end of her wits. The end of her tether. And soon, by her own hand, the end of her life. She locked the attic door and looked around her bedroom. Not that anyone other than her would view it as such. The room was dark, damp and cold. Compared to the rest of the house anyway. Her uncle's stately home, what with servants seeing to his every need, log fires in each room, and his obvious wealth showcased through ornate objects and works of art. Yet this is where he hid her away. A thin feather mattress lay upon the floorboards, barely passing as a bed. And it's on this mattress she would cry herself to sleep night after night, normally through hunger or a beating, or worse. She opened the attic window and looked down to the path below. Just past this were the wrought iron railings. She wanted to avoid them. The ideas seemed too gruesome. No, she would simply just drop. She sat on the sill, and bracing herself in the frame, slowly moved her legs through to dangle from the edge one by one. There she sat, listening to the sounds of the carriages in the street, staring trance-like, watching the light rain land on her knees, each drop joining with others before gathering enough mass to run down her legs, before getting soaked up by her dirty socks. She sighed and edged forward. But a new thought hit her. Maybe, maybe she could start again. Time slowed down. She was moving. She spun instinctively and managed to grip onto the windowsill as her torso slammed into the wall. Help! she screamed, kicking her feet to try and find her footing. Across the street, a passerby heard the young Adeline's screams and ran to help. However, before he managed to cross the street, Adeline's body was in freefall, landing on the path of the beautiful house with a sickening thud. The horror of the abuse suffered by that young girl became public knowledge and was enough for the evil uncle to flee the house one winter's evening. And the house sat empty 
for a short while. Locals would swear they would hear the screams of Adeline at the same time as her death on certain nights. Lamplighters would often run to save the silhouette of a young girl clinging on to the attic windowsill, only to reach the railings outside the home and be greeted by nothing but the cold London air. The house, however, in one of London's most desirable areas, would not stay empty for long. And its next resident was not one for superstition or ghost stories. British Prime Minister George Canning. Laughing at anyone who claimed his house was haunted and declaring them idiots and madmen, the fashion for referring to 50 Barclay Square as haunted soon passed in the community. Except for those who would continue to hear the screams of a tortured young girl falling to her death. After the Prime Minister's death, the house would again be sold, before being bought by a Viscount Beerstead. The Viscount dabbled in property and rented the house out to one Mr Myers. Breathtaking, said Andrew Myers as he walked into the living room area of 50 Barclay Square. With him were two painters from a nearby decorator's. This room should be lilac, for the future Mrs. Myers adores lilac. He walked into the sunroom at the rear of the property. Ah, he exclaimed, clapping his hands together. And this room should be lemon yellow, and I shall need a bookcase, for my love is an avid reader. And so the group, led by Mr. Myers, walked from room to room, with him advising on what tweaks each room should have to please his future wife. They finally reached the stairs to the attic. The group looked at each other. Is someone up there, sir? asked one of the painters. Mr. Myers took a step back. Not that I'm aware of, he said, putting his arm against his chest in defence. The two painters looked at each other with a sly smirk at the evident fear of Mr. Myers. Do you want me to go up and check? said the taller of the two men. Um, "'Yes, please. My knees are quite tired from the stairs already,' replied Mr. Myers. The painter again smirked at his colleague. "'Right-o,' he said, and began up the stairs. He stopped and looked down at Mr. Myers. "'Is this a joke or something? Someone going to come out and try and scare me? Be warned, I'll knock the block off if so.' "'Someone's knocking on that door,' said the painter. And then he pointed at the handle. Look at that! The handle rattled like somebody was moving it from the other side. The painter took a step back. Look, just go in, will you? If there's anyone in there, you have my permission to give them a hiding, shouted Mr. Myers. The painter shrugged and opened the door. No one in here, he shouted back. Must have been the wind. Mr. Myers and the other painter joined him at the doorway. The room was dark and dreary clearly a storage space for previous tenants. No, no, tuttered Mr. Myers. Forget this room, it's far too dingy. We shan't be spending any time up here. So the men made their way back to the living room. Over weeks, the work was carried out to perfection. Myers looked around with glee. His future wife was going to fall in love with the place, just as he had with her. He stepped out into the garden, where his gardener was busy at work. Mr. Myers, said a postman, and he reached out his arm with a letter. 
a letter that would signal the beginning of the darkness returning to 50 Barclay Square. Mr. Meyer's fiancée was the sender of the letter, and inside, she briefly detailed how she never truly loved Mr. Myers, and that to go through with the wedding wouldn't be fair to either of them. Mr. Myers was crestfallen. He dropped the letter to the floor and walked back inside in a daze, locking the front door behind him. Unable to enter the rooms he had so carefully designed to please his ex-fiancée, Myers resigned himself to the one room that had not been touched by her influence, the dark and damp attic. Myers became the ultimate recluse, leaving his job, his group of friends, and choosing to remain in the attic space. If he ever did need to travel to another room, to save himself the anguish of looking at the reminders of the life he should have had, he would only move at night time, using a candle to guide his way in order to light the required foot or so ahead of him. Weeks passed, then months, then years. The exterior of the home, no longer being cared for, became blackened with city smog. The window corners caked in dirt, the painted window frames blistering and peeling with the passing seasons. A house in such a state, with such an inhabitant, would draw interest anywhere but even more so in Barclay Square. The dark, gothic-looking, unclean house stood out amongst the pristine homes of the wealthy and elite. Children would spread tales about the man who lived there who had gone mad with grief. They would tell each other ghost stories about the ghostly candlelight of old man Myers, which would be seen moving from window to window in the dead of night, if you were unfortunate enough to see it. The unfortunate Mr. Myers was eventually taken to court, having not paid his rent or his taxes. But he didn't show. Such was the knowledge of 50 Barclay Square, however, that the judge actually pardoned him on that occasion as, and I quote, he has the misfortune of living in the haunted house of Barclay Square. Of course, tales of the supernatural aside, the world still turns and business is still business. Therefore, it was only a matter of time before Viscount Burstead served Myers his notice and Barclay Square stood empty once more. A few brushes and a touch of paint and this will be the best house here, smiled Viscount Burstead, shaking hands with the new tenant, a businessman by the name of Bentley. I'll arrange for it all to be done before you move in. Burstead was true to his word and the following week, Mr Bentley his wife Anna, and his daughters Caroline and Katie, arrived at 50 Barclay Square. As happened with the upper classes of the time, all of their belongings had been moved from their old property by the old servants and set up in the new house by their new ones, meaning the Bentleys could arrive and be sat reading a book within minutes, no boxes to unpack, no items to put away. This was all the better for Mrs Bentley, who was busy planning the forthcoming wedding of her eldest, Caroline, to a well-bred army captain named Kentfield. Captain Kentfield was due to stay overnight on leave from the army this coming weekend, and final preparations were underway. 
Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. The youngest daughter, Katie, came into the sunroom to speak to her mother, who was busy on a cross-stitch pattern. Mother, a rather unpleasant smell is coming from upstairs. Mrs. Bentley stopped and placed her darning hoop to the side. What sort of smell? Well... Like fowl, like animals at the zoo. Not the sort of thing the lady of the house takes lightly, Mrs. Bentley rushed past Katie and headed up the stairs. I can't smell anything, she said to Katie. Well, it was more over there, said Katie, pointing to the foot of the attic stairs. Mrs. Bentley walked over and sniffed the air. No, nothing. Come and smell for yourself. Katie joined her mother and the two sniffed the air. Nothing. And then... Both ladies turned and looked up at the attic door. Who's up? A gust came from behind them and passed between them heading up the stairs. The air filled with the foulest stench. Oh my lord, cried Mrs Bentley, placing a tissue to her mouth. See, it's awful, isn't it? Nodded Katie. The wind came from that room said Mrs. Bentley, taking more note in where the wind came from than where the wind was going. Entering the bedroom on the second floor, Mrs. Bentley pointed to an open window. That's our culprit, she said, heading over and shutting that window. It will have been a passing abattoir cart or similar. Oh, the smell. We must get this room aired out for Captain Kempfield's stay. That evening after dinner, Mrs. Bentley caught the attention of May the new servant girl. May, will you please go to the spare room and prepare it for Captain Kenfield? There was a mustiness in there earlier, so open a window if needs be. May lightly bowed and headed upstairs. Oh, I do like the captain, said Mrs. Bentley to her husband. There's something very... There came a loud scream from upstairs, which led to Mr. Bentley jumping from his seat and running upstairs to where the sound was coming from the spare bedroom on the second floor. On entering the room, there was May, fallen back against the wall, eyes wide and open-mouthed, pointing at the corner of the room. 
May, whatever's the matter? May cowered her head and curled up in a ball. Don't let it touch me. Don't let it touch me. Mr. Bentley stood back from May and shrugged at his wife. Mrs. Bentley stared towards the corner of the room that May had pointed and then knelt by the hysterical May. May, dear, May, she said, trying to pry May's hands away from her face. May, it's okay, it's okay. What happened? Horrible, May muttered, her eyes so wide that they looked they may pop from her head. It was horrible. Katie and Caroline were hugging each other, terrified by the whole scene. Mr. Bentley sent them downstairs to ask the male servant to come quickly. When he arrived, Mr. Bentley sent him to get the doctor, who, after arriving and checking over May, made the decision she should be taken to the local hospital to be cared for for at least the next few days. Later, downstairs, Katie and Caroline were still sat holding each other's hands in fear. I don't like this house, mother, said Caroline. Katie nodded in agreement. Me neither. The girls at the school say that it's haunted, that a man went mad in here. Nonsense and poppycock, said Mrs. Bentley. The poor girl clearly has a strange constitution, that's all. A good few nights with medical professionals will do her the world of good. Can we go and check on her tomorrow? asked Caroline. Mrs. Bentley reluctantly agreed. You and I can. It's on the route to the train station where we're to meet the captain, so I don't see why not. The next day, Mrs. Bentley and her daughter were sat in the doctor's office at the hospital. The doctor entered with a sombre look on his face. I'm afraid May passed away through the night. Caroline and her mother both gasped in shock. But she was only in her teens, said Mrs. Bentley. Yes, it appears she had quite the shock. The doctor rubbed his chin. I've never seen anything quite like it. So the poor girl was literally scared to death then, eh? said Captain Kentwright, almost with a smile. Simon, this is serious. It was terrifying, replied Caroline, hitting Kentwright in his arm. Oh, come on, you don't believe in all that, do you? The girl was probably mad, or a drunk or something, he said as he moved his case onto a railway trolley. The captain makes a good point, dear, affirmed Mrs. Bentley. We didn't really know her. Well, I believed her, snapped back Caroline. Something's in that house, and I just know it. Anyway, began Mrs. Bentley, you'll be glad to know you won't be staying the night in that room. Nonsense, I shan't hear of it. It sounds rather exciting, actually. No, Simon, please, it's not funny, panicked Caroline. No, I shall. Firstly, to prove to you it's all foolish, and second, so that you're not scared in your own home, my love, he said, patting her arm. So that evening... Captain Kentfield set the room up under specific instructions from his fiancée. She allowed him to spend the night in the room on the basis he was armed with a handgun and a handbell to draw attention should whatever attack the maid choose to attack again. Kentfield acquiesced to these conditions for nothing more than to appease Caroline and after supper that evening the Bentley family retired to bed and Captain Kentfield to the alleged haunted room. Five minutes after settling, Caroline heard the bell 
and ran down the hall, only to find Kentfield standing in the doorway, a grin across his face. I was just testing the apparatus. You're much quicker than I thought, he joked. Caroline was not impressed. The next time I hear that bell, you better be in trouble, or you will be, she snapped, turning sharply and stomping back to her room. The hours passed, and silence filled 50 Barclay Square. Caroline couldn't sleep. She was too anxious. The gnawing in her gut told her something was wrong with this house. First the smells, then the wrappings. Then, of course, poor sweet ma- The bell rang out frantically. Caroline jumped out of bed, meeting her equally flustered mother and father in the hallway. Captain Kenfield, cried Mrs Bentley, as the three of them ran down the hallway. The bell stopped. Therefore, so did the three of them. Caroline cringed at the thought it may well be another prank. Her mother's opinion of Captain... Mr Bentley burst into the bedroom, but it was too late. Motionless on the floor, his eyes wide with terror and his face contorted with fear, lay Captain Kenfield, quite literally frightened to death. The smoke was still leaving the barrel of his gun, and it was revealed that he had shot toward where his dead eyes still gazed in frozen, abject horror. The corner of the room. The same corner where May claimed something horrible had appeared. Whatever this horror was, was not affected by the lead bullet, which was now permanently lodged in the brickwork. Once more, the now notorious house was vacated and slipped again into disrepair. However, its notoriety had not travelled everywhere. And so, one Christmas Eve, two sailors from the recently docked HMS Penelope strolled through Barclay Square looking for lodgings. Coming upon this grand but tired-looking abandoned house, Edward Blunden and Robert Martin, knowing nothing of the house's history or reputation, decided they would potentially save some money and give the back door some gentle encouragement. We're in, whispered Blunden, looking back to Martin who was keeping watch. Slowly and quietly, the two sailors chuckled to each other as they entered the house and slowly closed the door behind them. Blunden found a candle in the kitchen to light their way. Look at this place. Bet you need some money to live here, he said. You're not wrong, Eddie replied Martin as they made their way through the house. Creeping up the creaking staircase, Blunden put his hand out to stop Martin. Shh, listen. Can you hear a knocking from up there? They listened intently, but they didn't hear a thing. I swear I heard three knocks from up there, he said, pointing at the attic. Probably rats, replied Martin, walking ahead and opening the door to the bedroom. The bedroom, which housed Captain Kentfield's discharged bullet. This'll do, said Martin, as he laid out his blanket on the floor. Blunden wasn't so sure. I feel a bit spooked in here, like I'm being watched. Don't be daft. Come on, we need to get our heads down. Martin fell asleep almost instantly. Blunden, on the other hand, was convinced he was being watched 
Something about the way... Something was walking down the hallway. Blunden froze. Robbie, he whispered. Robbie. The door slowly opened, and there was an undefined mist slowly forming in the doorway. Robbie, Robbie, shouted Blunden. Robbie Martin woke up, and looking towards the doorway, realised he was being stared at by a white face with black, hollow eyes and a long, distended jaw. The thing appeared to what looked like tentacles forming behind it. That was enough. Robbie closed his eyes and barreled through the thing in the doorway, bursting out of the front door and running until he found a policeman on the street. The policeman was obviously none too convinced by the sailor's story. Yes, he'd heard all about 50 Barclay Square, but it was the early hours of the morning, and he wasn't in the mood for such fairy stories. But Robbie Martin was insistent, describing with a fervour the horrific monster that had just cornered his shipmate, how its eyes were just holes, how its jaw appeared broken. He decided not to share the fact that he thought the thing had tentacles. He didn't want to be thought of as a madman. And so, begrudgingly, the officer accompanied Robbie back to Barclay Square. As they entered the square, a small crowd had formed outside the garden of the house. Running over to see what was going on, both the policeman and Robbie stopped with a jolt as they seen what had drawn the people's interest. There, impaled on the iron garden railings, was the limp body of Blunden. His eyes wide and locked with terror, the shattered glass around him indicating he'd either jumped or been thrown through the second-story bedroom window. This, as far as we know, was the last victim of the thing of 50 Barclay Square. After the Second World War, it became, and still is, a bookstore of some renown. Of course, the current owners think the whole thing is utter nonsense. Like Prime Minister Gladstone once did. But if the same timeline applies, maybe the terror of 50 Barclay Square still has its most terrifying days ahead of it. Barclay Square, for me, is one of the first ghost stories that I truly heard and was truly terrified by. It's a common ghost story in England. Everybody that knows about the paranormal in England has heard of Barclay Square, and some, myself included, have been fortunate enough to walk past the building and even take a cheeky photo outside though you do get the impression that the current residents of the building don't take too kindly to paranormal fans such as I roaming about the grounds and trying to snap photographs. There is something almost beautiful about the type of haunted house trope that Barclay Square personifies. The idea of a building being able to contain such spiritual energy and a number of ghosts if accounts are to be believed. From Adeline hanging from the window through to the tentacled being that's been spotted roaming around the area. I genuinely like to think that Barclay Square hasn't yet given up the ghosts, so to speak, and it's just going to take the right type of resident 
to be at 50 Barclays Square in order for those entities to once again make themselves known. But I guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. Thank you once more for joining me on this week's show. And don't forget, when you're discussing the supernatural or the paranormal, try and leave your disbelief at the door. And I'll speak to you next time on The Dark Paranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.